The Psychedologist. Autism on Acid. In this episode, Aaron Paul Orsini, the author of Autism on Acid, How LSD Helped Me Understand, Navigate, Alter, and Appreciate My Autistic Perceptions, comes on the show with Justine, a graduate student in pharmacology at University of California, Irvine, under the Department of Pharmaceutical Sciences. These two are really awesome to talk to. I wish that the conversation could have just gone on and on. Um, We talk about the book, Autism on Acid. We talk about the autistic psychedelic community. And we talk about the neurodiversity paradigm. Now, I've put a link in the show notes to Neurocosmopolitanism, a really helpful website, um, and some great terms and definitions really spelled out. I wanted to read a few of those to you now to make this episode clearer to understand when you listen to it. So neurodiversity is the diversity of human minds, the infinite variation in neurocognitive functioning within our species. What it doesn't mean is that it's a perspective, an approach, a belief, a political position, or a paradigm. Neurodiversity is a biological fact. Neurodiversity is not a trait that any individual possesses. Diversity is a trait possessed by a group, not an individual. When an individual diverges from the dominant societal standards of, quote, normal neurocognitive functioning, they don't have neurodiversity. They're neurodivergent. So I hope that that helps. And one more that I think might be helpful is the neurodiversity paradigm. This is a specific perspective on neurodiversity, a perspective or approach that boils down to these fundamental principles. Number one, neurodiversity is a natural and valuable form of human diversity. Number two, the idea that there is one normal or healthy type of brain or mind or one right style of neurocognitive functioning is a culturally constructed fiction, no more valid and no more conducive to a healthy society or the overall well-being of humanity than the idea that there is one normal or right ethnicity, gender, or culture. And number three, the social dynamics that manifest in regard to neurodiversity are similar to the social dynamics that manifest in regard to other forms of human diversity. For instance, diversity of ethnicity, gender, or culture. These dynamics include the dynamics of social power inequalities and also the dynamics by which diversity, when embraced, acts as a source of creative potential. Without further ado, I bring you Aaron and Justine. You're in, Aaron. Okay. Now mute yourself on Google Meet. Okay. Okay, and Justine's in too. Can you all hear y'all? I can hear good. Can you hear me? I hear you. Okay. All right. I hear me. Yay. I hear we. (laughs) Me and we as well. (laughs) Thanks, Aaron and Justine, for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So usually we start off um, talking about 
what was your relationship to consciousness as a child? Yeah. Well, I think I'll let Justine uh, lead off with uh, with this one here. Well, um, I don't know. It's hard to say because I think as a child, you're still trying to like figure out the outside world <laughs> as well as the inside world. But I think the kind of a turning point for me was um, taking care of my grandfather while he was um, kind of deteriorating from Alzheimer's. And I remembered how he was when I was a child and then watching him kind of um, regress and digress um, really kind of made me question what makes me me, like what is my identity and what do I lose as I get older? And that really inspired me to go to school and I got my degree in neurobiology. Um, and I initially start out, started working um, in Alzheimer's research, uh, Parkinson's neuro neurodegenerative disease, but um, my heart's always been with psychedelics. So here I am. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, for myself, and I think, you know, we, it's, it's really hard to separate out being on the other side of some of the psychedelics experiences of like my like early 20s. It's hard for me to remember what it was like before I had um, a, like a, an extra layer of looking at looking. And so like, I think when I look back to being a kid, I was very much just kind of caught up in everything, just kind of caught up in like the, the game of, of it all and not in like a negative or positive sense. I was just, you know, I was enthralled in, in the dance of life uh, growing up. And I think certain experiences stand out for me. Like I remember distinctly, like on like uh, Christmas Eve and into the morning, I would like never be able to sleep as a kid. And I remember like that I used to think that, I could like hire my friends to sleep for me so that like the morning could come faster. And I had this, like this sense that like, that like whatever I was experiencing was like immediately the same as someone else. So I like took that to like the furthest extreme, I think as a kid and would think like, Oh yeah. Like if one of my siblings can fall asleep, then like, we'll all get to Christmas morning at the same point, like ready, go. And like just thinking back on like simultaneously how like, silly that is and also like how much other stranger kind of experiences with consciousness i've also had that like kind of like bend in such a way that like some of those kind of like childish outlooks come back to look kind of like surprising in other lights like along the way um that might sound incredibly abstract but maybe that's a nice point of departure for where we're going <laughs> it made me think about how when i was a kid i wished my friends could pee for me like i wish i could just put my hands on them and transfer the pee and then they could go if i was like comfortable or something <laughs> you know this beanbag chair is so comfortable <laughs> oh um so justine now i have to ask what makes you you um i i don't know like i i think that question really lies with um the people that i surround myself with um and i i think that 
um, what I've come to realize that surrounding myself with people who make me feel comfortable, make me feel like I'm not trying and like make me feel just generally good. Um, it, when I feel like myself, um, and that's reflected in my relationship with, with who I'm around. Um, it's, it's really hard to kind of define into words or like put my finger on exactly. But I think it's just like this essence that comes out like bliss, I guess, like happiness and just like contentment. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that the people that I've spent a lot of time with would be able to describe me much better than I could describe myself because they have that kind of third person perspective of like, who is this person? So, um, cause I think being in my own head, I might be inherently biased. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We need a mirror to see ourselves and even that can be yeah. distorted. Well, it, hearing you say that really had me thinking about this experience I had recently because my grandfather passed away a couple of weeks ago and mm. he, um, and I'd also relating with you on taking care of um, a grandparent mm -hmm. and I had a, a meditation facilitated by a death doula and I got to go sit on this bench and someone could come, someone who had died could come and sit and talk to me. And he came and he didn't say anything, but he, I had this sense from him that like it was him and his essence, but so much had died with him when he died. That was like all of the aches and pains, all of the kind of the earthly memories, mm -hmm. um, all of the viewpoints and um, the aging body and mind and all the prejudices. Cause I was feeling conflicted when he passed. I was like really sad. And then I was just also remembering some of the things we could never agree on, you know, the things he would say that really made me cringe right. and like, you know, political stuff. And, um, but that was all like gone, but it was still him. So I've been thinking about that. Like what, what is going to wash off of me from this lifetime when I die and like what will remain, right. Is that still me? Like, what is me? Yeah. That like energy, um, I, uh, it's a, it's a strange territory, but I, I relate. Yeah. So Aaron, I have to ask what led to the creation of autism on acid and all of these things? Um, well, it's a long story. Luckily it's, I literally wrote a book about it and now we're writing a second book kind of contextualizing everything too. Um, but the very short version, um, was that uh, I was diagnosed autistic at 23. Uh, there was a lot happening, the whole life to summarize so briefly, but I, I struggled with different kinds of anxiety, depression issues. And I don't think I really had an understanding really of my autistic diagnosis even. Like I read books, I had a sense of kind of belonging as like a, as a new identity, even if that identity kind of positioned me as like an other at least I sort of felt like a sort of camaraderie to a group of others in this sense. And, but even then I didn't really have like kind of like an immediate experience. And I think that goes back to your first question of like becoming aware of awareness wasn't really there for me necessarily uh, until my first LSD experience. And 
even then for some years after, because I was at age 27, I'm presently 33, almost 34. And throughout all of these past years, I mostly just sat on the experience. I journaled, reflected about it. And then late 2019, I was reached out uh, by someone who had received a, a copy of the book that I brought to like this conference, just like I, I brought like 50 stapled together copies of this book that I printed at like a local print shop to like much to the confusion of like the print shop employees. And uh, <laughs> I brought this box of books to this conference in LA and I was like, I was pretty much terrified to like talk to anyone really. I hadn't, I hadn't talked about it outside of like close friend circles. And it's like a really weird thing to be like, hi, I'm autistic. Also, I'd like to talk to you openly about like using schedule one substances. <laughs> like it's like a really, even like a, a psychedelic conference, I was like, this is kind of weird. Um, and so like I hesitated throughout that day. Eventually I just kind of like started just handing people books. I like wrote stuff in the back of them or whatever. But I did that. That was in like June of 2018. And then a lot of time passed still, like almost more than a year went by till anyone reached out to me. I mean, I granted, I, pa I passed out like 50 copies, which is nothing. Um, so I was just like, well, no, that's the end of that. Um, and someone then reached out to me um, from a group called the Aware Project, which is just like an advocacy organization in Los Angeles. And they're like, hey, do you want to speak about this? And I was like, uh, I mean, maybe. Like at that time, I had the book just kind of like sitting in like draft mode on Amazon to like push into publish. Um, but I still wasn't ready. I had no sense of what would change as soon as I did that. And now like <laughs> Google my name, it's like all you can find is like autism, psychedelics, autism, psychedelics. So like my life's pretty like digitally tattooed for a while now. So like essentially what really drove me to want to publish and bring this story out there was to really just start a dialogue that I've been fortunate enough to continue to participate in over the course of this past year, year and a half now in public. And I basically wrote like an open letter to like scientists, other autistics being like, hey, can anyone else weigh in on this? And people did and they continue to do that. And that's been all of the growth. And a lot of that for me has been like, realizing that a lot of the things that I thought were like deeply embedded in like a cultural narrative and like, it's, it's been forever, like a deep unlearning process for me too. And like a new adoption of newer information over and over. Like there's just so many, and I mean, me and Justine, we have these like weekly meetings with other autistics and things. And like, there's just so many takes on what these things are. Like, what does a psychedelic mean to someone? What does an autistic diagnosis mean to someone? And more than anything, like I'm less and less certain of things over time. I just like, I feel like I'm spending more time just like discovering a new version of something I thought I understood, but then it's completely like contradictory then. And like, there's just, there's so many different kind of experiences. And so I could talk forever about it, but I, I think I've gone uh, in a full circle to that question. So I'll take boss. <laughs> mm. Wow. Yeah, and and you two have become sort of um, facilitators of like a lot of community meeting and melding and exchanging ideas and healing together, right? What what are some of the online stuff that you guys have been facilitating? Um, I'll, I'll let Justine speak to that a bit. Um, she's been helping me since the start of the Autistic Psychedelic Community Project, but she probably has some things to say. Well, um, I think it's 
mostly about um, just people being able to talk to each other about life and their experience with this reality and um, mostly about like how to um, allow people to help you with your struggle. Um, I think that uh, this sense of like trusting other people with their because a psychedelic experience, um, even just like uh, mental health issues, those are deeply personal things. And the idea that now we've become so isolated due to this pandemic and um, it further compounds um, this sense of like, I'm alone, nobody understands what I'm going through. Um, and for whatever reason, I don't know if it's just, just the universe, but all these kind of all all these cards just like laid itself out, and I was just like, "Oh, this is the hand I'm dealt." So let's just make the best of it. Um, that it that's a, an aside from um, what I was personally experiencing at the time when I had connected with Aaron. Um, but as far as this community goes, the, our weekly meetings have been tremendously impactful on myself, just listening to other people's stories, listening to other people's experiences. And I also, we, we just started, a, a, we added a, a Wednesday meeting where I host like a breakout room and people come and they ask me like sciencey questions because I realize um, how how kind of intimidating maybe the neurosciences um, or even like higher academia uh, community members have told me how, you know, they try to read scientific journals and publications and they just can't really make that much sense of it. And there's no other resource to kind of translate this jargon. And I was like, let me, let me do that for you. <laughs> so um <laughs> Yeah, it's it's been it, it as much as it's maybe helped other people. It's uh, I I mean I, I don't want to speak in platitudes, but it it's also changed me and helped me as well. Something that I've been thinking about leading up to this conversation is like identity and how how identity comes into play in the psychedelic experience, but how also it's like, there's a boundary dissolution too. And I was wondering um, just a, a really open-ended question, like what has your experience, YouTube's experience of identity been like in, in light of psychedelics or, or, you know, consciousness, we could just say consciousness. Well, you know, I think it's interesting now I feel a lot of what I would maybe call like my maybe psychedelic exploration days seem to be, I would hesitate to say that they're like fully behind me, but they do seem more distant to my present like place. I feel my current work, this, what I seem to be doing seems to be more of like, I don't know, uh, of like this, of my, my role, my, my like fulfillment of like this one kind of particular role. Um, and a lot of the psychedelic exploration, you know, cause I wrote pretty extensively about, you know, sort of using psychedelics as a tool for, you know, interpersonal relations, but there's another sort of transpersonal dimension to my psychedelic experiences as well. And I feel like that was equal parts therapeutic for me 
And I think I recall I wrote like a short like poem at one point that was about this idea that I came into like this awareness that that I was essentially like born as like a blank canvas and that like from as early as I could recall back that like me, this blank canvas, like I might've had some grooves or I might've had like a certain like shape of canvas or whatever it might be, but there was just like paint that was being put upon me, like in layers and layers. And I just remember vividly sort of like re-experiencing this somewhat of just being like, I was given a name. I was given like a hometown. I was like, I was, I received all of these kind of conceptual layers and they gathered and they gathered and they gathered. And in this sort of like psychedelic experience, I remember distinctly having this sort of like visualization of like these layers of paint kind of being like washed aside and kind of revealing like a more like a, like a pure essence of some sort and just kind of reflecting on that. And realizing that at that time, this was when I was kind of going through a lot more of like sort of transformational sort of work or something like this. But I recall that it felt like I was also releasing something of like almost like a resentment towards some of those like layers of paint. Like I didn't choose this. I didn't choose like this sort of like almost like angry feeling towards it. Um, but then when I sort of saw the process or the dance of like how we acquire identity or like when I started to look inwardly and sort of like when I looked in between these little like the pickup sticks of agreement that were like holding me together, it was just like empty space in between. And so I was like, I guess I'm just like a bunch of agreements. I guess I agree with that too. And then like I would kind of go forward. And so there was a time in which it was kind of challenging to navigate because this is like a very like it's such an impractical lens to be like, I have to go file my tax, my taxes now. Like it, it doesn't have like an immediate like relationship to like this kind of like exploration or thinking. But at that time it was deeply important to me because like I reached a point in my life where like I refused to take another step forward until I understood why I was doing anything really. And I don't think I got any closer to developing a firm answer to that why but I did become aware of the mechanisms that might inform the ways in which I might guess about the answers. And that's about as close as I got to forming an identity. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Thank you for coming to my Ted talk. <laughs> Something like that. No, that's beginning. my response, I guess. <laughs> mm. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. That, Hmm. Yeah, I, I lost my own self there. I don't know, like in a, in a sense. I mean, I'm I'm reminded of that magical feeling from that sort of exploration. But when I try to kind of bring it back through, like the netting to, into like again, like that when I apply that, I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. But I have a distinct sense of like the comfort that I receive from having a sort of like personal insight because I don't I don't necessarily think that these sorts of insights need to necessarily be like transferable. I think that like they're built out of the stuff in our heads. We like, we build a, yet a new map of our map, but sometimes that map can't like fully translate. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I even, I wondered while you were speaking, if you're kind of in an integration, like a major integration phase right now, like the insights from journeys in the past, led you to doing this work in the waking consensus reality of now of creating a, a platform and a container for for neurodiverse people and autistic community etc to come to come together and 
connect about these ineffable yeah, experiences. It feels very much, you know, I think part of why I transitioned away from, you know, that sort of exploratory phase was uh, there was a, there was just a point where it was like sort of especially if I was kind of going into like the very kind of like cosmic exploration or something there would be this sense of there was a very odd coupling of like wow this is still pretty amazing mixed with like wait this has suddenly become like a familiar place almost like when the astonishing had become not so astonishing I was like I'm not sure why I keep going back to this astonishing place I should probably go take care of some stuff over there um and that was very much what it seemed like. It wasn't so much that I was like pushed out of that sort of psychedelic exploration space. It was more like I had a sense that, yeah, that there was growth. Uh, like I had become so obsessed with the growth that was possible in a psychedelic realm that I think I was increasingly ignoring some of like the day-to-day -day duties. And I think that, as you said, this very much is like me stepping back into that. And I don't know, it's been helpful and, and, I don't know. I always, I draft off Justine's energy often as well. Like as a student, she's like very much like in this like very structured space. And like, I draft off that energy I find, uh, and it like inspires me to, in so many different ways. But Yeah. Yeah. That's kind mm. of like been my identity. <laughs> um, this is a good segue, but I, um, Right before we had started this um, community, I was I was just coming off the tail uh, for from an interview at Yale, and it was like the pinnacle of my academic career because I had dropped out of high school, um, and so I was a, a bit of a non traditional student. I I went through community college and all those things, and to be able to to interview at Yale was like a dream of mine, but it didn't work out. I, I was extremely nervous. It was, you know, of course, and there were so many qualified candidates with me. Um, and on the plane back, I just, I sat knew, knowing that I probably, it wasn't my most successful interview, but just being invited there in and of itself was enough of an inspiration to get me to ask myself, like, how can I be better? Like, how can I make my application better? Like, how can I do better for the next time? And it inspired me to get involved with psychedelics because I was like, I, I, I mean, I should do something that I love. And I, um, I started getting involved with um, psychedelic research and like reaching out to people. And when I got home, I was like, well, I got to, you know, find something, I got to do something. And the opportunity came up to, to start working in, um, with autistic persons. And I was like, I don't really understand, um, this condition because I, I learned about it briefly while I was in school, but I, you know, I didn't really know much about it at all. And, doing further research, I, I came across Aaron's stuff. And I was like, this is some sort of crazy synchronicity. Because the, the fact that I uh, was kind of committed to going into psychedelic research, and then also like my curiosity with autism just kind of um, melded together. And I, 
I kind of realized that um, a lot of my identity had hinged on the fact that I needed to be a successful student. I needed to get A's. I needed to do this. I needed that. But, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I I realized that everything happened for a reason. Because if I had gone to Yale, if I had done all these things, like none of this would have happened. And I wouldn't be on the trajectory that I'm on right now, which I love. I've never felt so fulfilled. I've never felt so me. Um, and so I think it's just a kind of testament to like trusting the process and believing that you are exactly where you're meant to be. Yeah, yeah. I agree that um, there's a lot to trusting where you are, where we are um, <laughs> as, and it can kind of flow, like it can be easy to I'm right where I'm meant to be right now. And then yeah. Catch me on a bad day. Yeah. And I'm like, no. <laughs> um, yeah. I, and so just thinking of where, where kind of psychedelics are right now in coming into the mainstream and clinical trials. And um, in, some have said like psychedelics being used to treat some of the symptoms of sickness in the Western world um, rather than getting at the cause of that sickness. Um, I wonder I wonder what either of you have to say about, um, you know, do, do you think that, I, I think the world could be more accessible in a lot of ways. Um, and so are, it, does the psychedelics industry, as it were, um, do you think it's making psychedelics accessible for everybody or you know, how could, how could yeah, it I think a better that, job? You know, and I do, I follow along for, variety of reasons just trying to keep up with mainly a current point of frustration is that you know we get a lot of people that come through our group or who reach out to me and they're like all right i've done a lot of research and this looks like a great option or an opportunity for me to learn and i'm ready to try this out what should i do and, and we just kind of have to be like well you can't do that yet or you can but you must take a flight and you must pay this fee to go to this and there's a certain inaccessibility that's in, at least in the present moment for a lot especially those who might be economically like uh, unable to achieve those sort of like more luxurious kind of retreats and things um my simplest answer at least at this present moment is that like it's we haven't yet seen some of these threads play out. I think it's easy to assume how some of them will play out as far as like mirroring, like a kind of like a cannabis development and things. I, I, I don't know. I spoke once with, um, an individual who kind of pointed out to me that he said the tricky part that was going on with a lot of this is that everyone believes in their own version of their story that they're doing like, the, the highest good for this movement, like potentially from, from all sides, whether that's from like a, the, the perspective of like someone who wants to fully decriminalize, fully legalize, or someone who's trying to use something like venture capital to bring something to market that might not otherwise reach a market, or there's just so many sides. We, I try to speak to the complexity of what all is happening and realize that in a lot of these spaces, at least within psychedelic culture, a lot of it is like, it's well known here, 
but like talk to my aunt who doesn't know what a what's a psilocy like none of these things you can't even you have to build so much of that foundation before anyone can really meaningfully participate in guiding it that you know i'm i'm hopeful that they will there will remain access points in in a similar way the I guess in the same way that in California, we're lucky enough to be able to go to a dispensary to be able to receive a product that's measured, quality controlled, uh, and all those things. But at the same point, we have the option to go to our like cultivator collective that is organic, and we don't need to push that through testing. We just have like a collective license to be able to access. Like having those many tiers of access to me is something that's always important and it seems to satisfy many different needs at the same point. So my hope is always that, yeah, of course, that, that equitable access remains a topmost priority because sometimes I get funny feelings being like, you know, a story like mine might be elevating the significance of some of these medicines, but will that elevation of that significance kind of create this sort of like monopolistic like this must be only like kind of like owned and sold under one patented kind of like uh, pipeline i don't know and and um, i for better or for worse it's not necessarily my place to really dictate much of it I mean for myself like i i've tried to remain focused mainly on like the healing that's happening with people the and me and Justine talk about this often too about like how a lot of our work decreasingly has to do with psychedelics themselves it's like we're all connected by this mutual interest but like mm-hmm. we're healing by just being ourselves in a space of neurodiverse people so like at some point like i always have the economic and political and social development and the peripheral to be like okay where can some of these dreams or aspirations that we have actually come to fruition in terms of like when can like a legal retreat happen and where and what sort of like support is required like even the oregon and the oregon rollout is still like being birthed as we speak like that no one knows exactly what that'll look like um and so like i pay attention just in the name of service to those who i might be able to like direct towards you know like the kinds of safe and ethical places that might be supportive of the experiences they're trying to have because we've never been so close and it's weird being in like the only 50 years of human history where there was like psilocybin was prohibited and like we're so close to it just being like those those risks those stories those like fringe negative outcome stories that we hear like about people doing things that are after the fact very obviously to them like a very risky way to utilize psychedelics or had they had access to a certain amount of information or literature or like medical screenings there's so many preventative steps and stages and like i don't know i find myself increasingly playing the role of like cautioning people and uh that's coming from someone who in my younger 20s was like this is all propaganda man like i don't like and so like it's like no there's real risks there's real challenges and i simply like i myself like i speak all the time with uh, advocates doctors like uh, radicals anarchists like i i feel like i'm just like in this weird kind of center point of a conversation where i'm like 
I sympathize with those who spent a decade to get their degree to practice, to have that authoritative knowledge and ability. I sympathize with those who could never afford to pay for someone's time who has that level of credibility. Like there's like a constant like push back and forth. And you see that in the sort of like decrim, legalize, regulate, like all these different dynamics. So I realize I haven't taken like a firm stance. It's just like, that's, that's me exploring the landscape and just kind of voicing that for ourselves, for our organization, we're just like in the formulation of, you know, what it is we're trying to bring to people. And right now we're just trying to bring people together, like in a sort of like networking kind of community sense. But I've been talking for a while. I, I open it up to Justine too. I, I think I, um, I, I guess the luxury or I, I don't know the exact word, but just being in science, um, in research and in academia, I'm surrounded by like brilliant inquisitive minds. And so we're not so much concerned about the politics, but we just kind of follow the data and follow, you know, what the results are. Um, and I've been able to be supported by amazing faculty, um, amazing inspirational advisors. Um, and hopefully through the work that we're doing in this space, we'll be able to inform um, the general public about what these things actually do. Because a lot of the stuff was prohibited before researchers were even able to define what was going on. And so I think that's the one of the biggest issues that I see is that, um, you know, just regarding the the politics around it, um, the legality of it, it makes it quite difficult sometimes for researchers to get their hands on certain substances or um, explore these compounds as freely as they wish. Um, but I'm fortunate enough to be at an institution that the I mean, it, it's it doesn't I, I don't really come across that problem, but maybe, you know, smaller uh, not everybody lives in LA. Not everybody can go through the UC system. So, um, you know, other bright, inquisitive minds should have the opportunity to study um, these things just as well as I can or anybody else at a major institution. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I think that there. Uh, there's a diversity of needs, and so therefore there should be a diversity of options, and and none could arguably be upheld as better than others. It's just what works better for the person and their unique mm -hmm. situation and what they're looking for. Yeah. Go ahead. No, up to you. And go ahead. I was wondering. Um, something that came up as a worry for me was. Um, upon seeing a study of MDMA treating anxiety um, in autistic adults, I, I wondered, and I think that this did happen, if some people would conclude that it was autism that was being treated and not um, the anxiety and that, that this could like perpetuate a narrative of that um, autism is like a sickness or um, something to be cured. I was wondering what you would say to, to someone who um, maybe misunderstood such a study or, or, or had ideas about um, 
people with different minds needing yeah, to, definitely. to have and, their and that's something that it, you know we have like a presentation deck that we bring to uh, present to different organizations or psychedelic societies and things and like our first slide is that we're not seeking to like cure autism through any of these approaches um, that we're exploring um, and that has to do with like the neurodiversity paradigm and the idea that like that there's just a range of differences like in an individual's brain functions and that that can be incorporated uh, into society through things like accommodation and, and things like uh, the individual recognizing unique needs and things like that. Um, so that's a huge part of it. And in particular, in relation to the MDMA study, they did do quite a good job of making that pretty explicitly clear in that study as well, that it was addressing the social anxiety component, um, that that was something that seemed to be a particular feature, like a subcondition. Um, and, you know, the, all the work that Dr. Danforth put out and like her presentation, she was very clear in that language. Um, as well. And I think she was also uh, quick to offer those sorts of guiding uh, languages uh, to other individuals who had since kind of uh, spoken on this subject. Um, and it's just, it's a really sensitive topic, you know, even within our group space, people will kind of be like, hey guys, like, I like neurodiversity. Is it okay if I also acknowledge that like some parts of my life are really hard? <laughs> like, you know, I think that it can go kind of full tilt the other way um, as well. And so like, again, like I, I think things like Twitter are built to incite an endless argument that could be resolved through like people looking at each other in the eye and like having to like sit with each other instead of just have like one sentence at a time kind of thing about it. Um, but when, when those things do come up, you know, you'll, there's advocates on internet spaces that are like neurodiversity is erasing my disability access. And so like, it's a complex conversation. Um, it's, it's quite literally as complicated as like the whole of civilized life. And like, how do we, how do we agree to what standard of expectation are we setting to a given individual and what cultural context, like, I'm always fascinated when I hear from autistics who are coming from other countries, other backgrounds for just innumerable reasons, like just the every, you know, something this is very much probably like a United States sort of view to sort of have like this, like, uh, like country centric bias towards these ideas. But there's, we've heard from so many individuals with so many different perspectives. So as far as the curing thing for us, like that's a no brainer. We're like not attempting to cure or like eradicate someone's like personality type. Um, in my own experience, like I, my form of relief came in the form of uh, boosting like interoceptive processing, which is just fancy speak for like feeling internal states better. Um, and so like, that didn't really cure anything, but it sure did make life easier. Like I, like I, I use the metaphor of like a contact lens, like doesn't cure like a sort of like, uh, you know, a difference of vision, but like it might improve certain vision in certain contexts it might be also like, uh, not an improvement in another context. It's all very context dependent. So that's my long winded response to that. But yeah, very simply, if anyone out there is like ready to write us an email that's like, stop trying to cure autism, we're like, we're on your side. Don't worry, we're not trying to cure autism. Like, we're, we're just trying, if anything, like, we're listening to, we're actually, if someone does want to get like riled up, we would like love to listen to that to better understand how we can have better 
like conversations ongoing too. Like I'm here for all of it. Like people's rage, people's excitement, like all of it. Like I just try to listen, <laughs> take it all in. Cause it's, it's, it's a crypt. The thing, the fundamental thing is I think most people that are very riled up in these areas are one, like they're, they're, they're generally the marginalized groups where it's one thing for a person of privilege to be like, doesn't matter if I'm considered autistic or not, I'm special. Like, that's cool. But then like, there's a person who's like, it does matter if I'm autistic or not, because that means I get this level of government aid. I get this level of like, there's, there's just, it's more complicated than just like kind of giving people uh, freedom of expression. It's like, there's also very real limitations that come down for people when they like choose to disclose their diagnosis, explore it, all this other stuff. Um, but yeah, I take pause there because I, like, I could talk forever. That's like such a central thing to what we're exploring with all these others. And it's also so central to us that I hesitate to speak much more because I'm sure even if I pulled like a group of people from like our uh, community group, they'd offer still yet other variations of that same response, like that would have still yet more nuance. So. I appreciate your response and the way that you synthesize many different perspectives into, um, into, you know, just something that keeps my mind working and it's, it's like, it's not solved. We don't have answers, but, um, yeah, just more I mean, if we're going to try to arrive complexity. to a place where we see individuals as like unique intelligences that can harmonize, then we have to also, take the long amount of time required to be like, okay, that person over there plays the bassoon, that place, person over there plays the cymbals, that place in, person over there plays the violin. Like, we have to take all the time to recognize what instruments there even are in the orchestra first before we just go around being like, guys, let everyone just be like, but we have to like understand what that is first and give those people space and like room to express what their, what their unique needs are too. Like, so yeah, it's weird. We're confined in these interview environments to where like I'm representing somewhat, but a large part of my messaging, as you just said, is just like my, I represent myself and the complexity that is all these other people and like anyone that knows a neurodiverse person or is a neurodiverse person. It's like, I've more than psychedelics, more than anything, like what's helped my healing journey is being able to express like one coming into an awareness of my particular challenges or my particular like vantage point from which I see, but also being able to express that. And I think when I was younger, I was afraid I'd be misunderstood, but now I'm just aware that I'll be interpreted and that's fine. That's part of it. And I think that allowing for that conversation to continuously unfold, like that's the gift, I think, more than anything. Like me and Justine will bring like, you know, factoids and information, but more than anything, we just hold space for people to be like, you mean I can just be me? That's cool. <laughs> like, that's great. Like, that's an amazing thing to give to someone. Um, and we give that to one another. I mean, we try to just give that to everyone. Um, yeah. I, I think like a, a point of contrast, um, not even a contrast, but like a, a connecting point um, is public speaking is like one of the biggest fears um, that's, that's out there. And that does have a social component as well. And there are people out there who do take medication to help them with public speaking. 
And I think that it helps to kind of um, see these issues from a different perspective because they're all kind of permutations of the same thing. And so to have a study that kind of um, links or connects this social anxiety with autism, because I know that's kind of like a, a stereotype or like a, a kind of general understanding, but the the social component, I think, is, is just a human component um, where I could definitely say from a personal experience, I don't I, I don't necessarily like feel a hundred percent comfortable when I approach a group of strangers or like if I'm in a, a large set, like a, a large group of people, like I'm, I'm not completely comfortable as well. And like, you know, there are times where I think that, um, that kind of, um, insight might be lost. And I, f I feel that it's it's really important to kind of try and see yourself in other people, try to see yourself or relate something that you relate to, um, and it it just it it helps us all uh, spread the love, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Oh, indeed. Mm. What do you each do lately to tap into your consciousness more? What's your consciousness hack? Well, for myself, I don't know if it's necessarily anything new, but I think it's newly needed during this like quarantine time has been like returning back to music and for better or for worse, I've had the luxury during this pandemic time to be able to do a lot to progress the work that we've been working on. But a lot of that also, including even something like this, like necessitates uh, living life through a screen um, a lot of a lot of the day. And more than just music being what music already is, just being able to to pick up something that doesn't require me to like stare off into space and it doesn't require just that part of my brain. I can, it's almost like in the picking up of the musical part of my mind, I can set down all the other parts. And for me, that's like, it doesn't, it almost doesn't make sense. Like by doing the activity, I gain energy from it. And for me, that's like kind of like my like coffee replacement or like, I don't know if I notice I'm like pushing words around a page too much or whatever it is. I just, I give myself permission to take that like 10 or 15 minutes, just play and play until like I return to like a sort of like a mind body kind of connection that I think is essential. Cause like I can certainly work fast and make a lot of work, uh, but will there be much meaning in that same work? Not necessarily. So like, I feel like playing some music is something that helps me refine that, that kind of like center of self or that sort of heart place. And, be able to work from a place of like meaningfulness, I think is one way to, to frame it. Yeah. I think that play aspect is really um, important and it's, it's really resonant for me as well. Cause um, a little while ago, actually last year, my, my niece suffered a stroke when she was five, she was five years old. Um, and so it's been quite a journey. Um, she lo lost 
use of her entire right side. It was like the scariest thing I, I've ever gone through in my life. Um, but she's well on the way to recovery. Thankfully, she was so young. Um, but it has kind of um, interestingly imbued a sense of anxiety in a very small child. And so playing with her, um, letting her know that things are okay. I know that um, I tell her all the time that, you know, just try and try again. But watching her try and having her ask me questions and seeing her especially experience things for the first time um, really helps me reflect on my own journey. And I, I think that as we get older, we we lose the opportunity to enjoy the first time. Like nothing's ever as good as the first time. But to see it through the eyes of a child kind of reinvigorates that whatever that is, that like bliss, that excitement of just pure, like, this is the best thing in my life. I like when she was a baby, I saw her uh, eat vanilla ice cream for the same, for the first time. It, like her face was amazing. Um, and so I, I think that returning to that state of just like pure carefree, like no worries in the world. I've just enjoy the beauty of existence is like that really just brings me, um, I guess into whatever consciousness is like the, the amazingness of it, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Children are the medicine. And which means that we all have medicine in us too, because that inner child is still what I sense and what I hear is that the, the inner child is still there, even if they're really sad or shy. Yeah, or, maybe you know, just eat some ice cream or something. Situations, they're there. <laughs> yeah, put on some colorful socks. <laughs> mm. Well, it's it's been really great to have you both. And and Aaron, your book is so well written, so so rich and beautiful, and and complex but also simple and accessible. So thank you for birthing that. And, and the birth of this new book coming is, is awesome. A really oh, great. Yeah. Thank you. Really Those are very serious words you've used there. So, so I, I also, thank you. I, I mean, we're just doing what, um, yeah, I appreciate that. And likewise, I triple bounce all of that same gratitude to the people that contributed to the second book too, because it's like along that theme of let's get more people's voices heard, like, this next book will have a few dozen people who are expressing their psychedelic experiences and the conversation just goes from there. So thank you for being a part of growing that conversation with us too. I appreciate that. Oh, totally. We're in the fractal. <laughs> so uh, where can people find yeah. you? I will no, the simplest way is just to go to autisticpsychedelic.com. That's where you know, you can find me or Justine's contacts, or you can read all about the organization. And then it, there's links off to the autismonacid.com site too. But 
less and less my work is anchored by that particular story. Like it'll always be a part, but the community kind of conversation is the main kind of work that we're doing now. So autisticpsychedelic.com is, is the place to, to reach out or follow us on social or all those kinds of things. The Psychologist is Consciousness Positive Radio. Find us everywhere podcasts are hosted. For more information, visit us on Facebook or online at thepsychologist.com. Thank you.